This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, our guest, the Reverend Nib Stroop, invites us to critically engage our legacies of racism in the 21st century through the lens of the prophetic life of journalist Ida B. Wells. We talk about Stroop's new book, which he co-wrote with Catherine Meeks, called Passionate for Justice. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Nibs Stroop. He's a nationally recognized leader in multicultural and racial justice ministries. He retired in 2017 as pastor of the Oakhurst Presbyterian Church in Decatur, Georgia. He's written numerous articles for magazines, including The Atlantic Online, and he's written frequently for the Westminster John Knox Press series Feasting on the Word. He's also a frequent contributor to the Journal for Preachers. He's the author of four books, including the recent book Deeper Waters, Sermons for a New Vision. Today we're talking about a book that he co-authored with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. Reverend Nibstroop, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. There's so much in this book that I want to dig into. I want to talk about the structure of it. I want to talk about how you came to write it with Catherine Meeks. But on the way to that, let's take two steps back and let's talk for a couple of minutes about you and some of your background. Where did you grow up? Where were you a pastor? And what was it that drew you to write about Ida Wells? So let's take that first. Kind of where did you grow up and what was your background like? Well, I grew up in Helena, Arkansas, which is in the, on the Mississippi River Delta, about 50 miles south of Memphis. I grew up in the segregated South, and so I was indoctrinated with white supremacy by really wonderful white people. I mean, some of them were not so wonderful, but the ones who were important in my life were wonderful folks. So they taught me all kinds of powers like race and gender and homophobia and such like that. So I had that kind of double tension between uh, really wonderful people teaching me and uh, helping me come to believe some really difficult and terrible things. So that's part of that. I grew up in a small town. I grew up in actually the play, the county that I grew up in had the worst massacre of African-Americans in American history of lynching-wise. Uh, Catherine and I were just down in Helena to celebrate, to not celebrate, but to dedicate a memorial to those victims in Helena. So over 235 people killed. So that was the kind of territory I grew up, but I experienced it as a wonderful place to live because I was a white person in the segregated South. I became a pastor, and I was ordained in the Presbyterian Church in the Old Southern Church in 1975, my wife uh, also was a pastor, Caroline Leach, and she and I were the first clergy couple in the old Southern Church. So we took a church in Norfolk, Virginia, that was a mission of Presbyterian low-income housing complexes, actually targeting Navy families, but there were a lot of low, other low-income folk in there. So we were there for about six years. Then I uh, worked in the Southern Prison Ministry in Nashville and did prison ministry uh, for the people on death row and uh, people who were victims of 
murders and also work, tried to do work as a lobbyist in the Tennessee legislature on prison reform. I was terrible at that. So and then I ended up, uh, Caroline and I ended up being co-pastors at Oakhurst Presbyterian Church for about 30 years. It's a multiracial church. So we did a lot of ministry and we grew a lot, made a lot of mistakes, but we uh, learned a lot too. So it was uh, really a nationally recognized place because of the ministry that the members did and we did together. So in this book that we're discussing today, Passionate for Justice, that's focused on Ida B. Wells, but there's a lot of you and a lot of Catherine Meeks in that book. And at one point in the book, you talk about, uh, I think it was one or two years into your ministry at Oakhurst, you get a phone call from a parishioner, an African-American parishioner, and it, it begins to shape and change the way that you think about the dynamics of your role as a pastor at Oakhurst Presbyterian Church, if I read it correctly. But I'd like, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about that moment and that story. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I, I, uh, when we came to Oakhurst, it was a really small, struggling church. It had been a white flight church of about 900 members and got down to about 40 members. But there were African-American members there when we came, so we were grateful for that. And we began to gradually build it up. As uh, but I thought I was a progressive, liberal, white guy, so I thought I, you know, I was over race. Uh, that was one of the reasons I came to Oakhurst is I wanted to be a part of that vision. And early on, as you say, I got a call from an African American elder, a woman elder, and she said she had a concern she wanted to discuss. And we talked about it a little bit, and uh, we were disagreeing. So I. I I asked her what she was angry about, and she asked me why I thought she was angry. And I said, well, you sound angry. And she said, no, I'm not angry. You'll know it when I get angry. I'm not angry. And then she made what I didn't recognize then I do now as kind of a uh, what I would call an existential leap. She asked me if I would hear her opinion about why I thought she was angry. She could have just hung up and just said, this guy's not worth fooling with but decided to take me on. So she asked me that, and I had a moment of, well, gosh, do I want to hear this? And so I said, okay, tell me. And she said, well, I'm guessing you're not accustomed to dealing with black people, especially black women, as peers. And um, that discomfort made you project your discomfort and anger onto me. So am I right? So then I, I hesitated. I don't want to seem like an eternity, but anyway, I finally said, yes, you're right. I, I think I'm not accustomed to that. And she said, well, so I thought I was going to be crushed at that point that I admitted my racism. She said, no, I can work with you now. I, I can't work with white people who don't admit that they have racism in me. So we went on to really work together and become friends, and we wrote the first book together on race. So it was pretty much a turning point for me and her, I think. Uh, she was trying out something new with white folk, and I certainly was trying out something new with African-Americans that I had not initiated, but it was a powerful moment. Well, and I want to linger there for a moment because what I heard in that exchange, and I thank you for sharing it with our listeners, is she confronted you and she said, I'm not calling you a racist. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that my experience of how you are reacting to me right now, let's take a look at that. And she kind of interrogated your experience. And in the process of doing that, she helped to awaken you, if I've heard you correctly, she helped to awaken you to the fact that some of those reflexes that you had learned in Arkansas from those well-meaning white racists that you said that you grew up with, those reflexes were still there and she was unearthing them for you. Is that a fair characterization? 
Yeah, I think I would add that she was willing to go into that territory. You know, there are many biblical stories about that, but she was willing to go into unfamiliar territory for her, too, because she often, and, and many people of color, especially African Americans, do not want to venture there with white folk because the response they get is often not great. So she was taking a risk, too. But yeah, your, your understanding of it is correct. Well, let me ask you then, Pastor Stroop, what did you learn from that moment, and how did you carry that knowledge forward from that moment? Well, I learned that I had a lot to learn about my own racism and a lot to learn about interactions uh, with white folk and people of color, especially African Americans. One of the great learnings I had from that is that we, especially black and white folk, do not have much practice at doing this kind of conversations together, that uh, neither one of us want to enter into them. I guess part of me, when I came to Oakhurst, had a sense that black folk were just longing for white folk to accept them and say they were human beings. And my experience at Oakhurst is a little bit of that, but they mainly just want to be seen as human beings, and they're not dependent on white folk to affirm that. So the necessity of being able to go into that kind of sacred, holy ground is essential, I think, if we're going to make any progress on the power of race. So we had a lot of that. We had a lot of conflict at Oakhurst because no one really had a lot of practice at being human beings with one another. Well, and you mentioned later on in the book, Passionate for Justice, you talk about how resistant, particularly non-Southern whites, are to even entering into the conversation or imagining that they should be part of a conversation around race issues. Isn't that right? That's right. I think uh, all of us who are classified as white have the power of race in us to one degree or another. Uh, Most of us want to say it's at at a very small degree, but it's really a lot more than we think. So, yeah, we found often the most resistant folk, uh, especially when you get into intimate space, are people that are not Southerners. Uh, Because Southerners, pretty much black and white both, and now I guess Latino who are in the the South now understand the longing for family, but the the, the great barriers to it. And so uh, there's a sense in which we know this is here. It's a question of whether we want to go into it or not and how much pain we want to endure. Well, and you just used a phrase that comes up several times in your book that you co-wrote with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice. It's this phrase classified as white. Let's linger for a moment and unpack that. What do you mean when you use that phrase classified as white? Yeah, I do that intentionally, so thanks for picking up on that. The system of race for me and for Catherine, I think, and many others is just that. It's not a biological or genetic category. It's not meant to classify the family of humanity, which we really need. We need a good system of classifying humanity, but we don't have that. Uh, Race was born in the idea that Europeans and people of European, especially uh, British and Northern European descent, were superior to all others, and that that was its origin. So uh, I use classified as white to help white people and others begin to think that this is a category that's been given to us, a sociological, political construct, whatever you'd like to use, other than biology or theology. And so we need to think about that and how much it has captured our way of thinking. So for me, that's an essential phrase to help people who are classified as white to begin to think about our whiteness, not because we're bad, but because we're captive. So I I, I think that's essential. 
Well, and listeners will begin to pick up on the fact that even though the cover of the book has a picture of Ida Wells on the cover, and even though it says that Ida Wells is a prophet for our time, this book takes the biography of Ida Wells and her life story and uses it as a jumping-off point for the kind of questions that we've gotten into in this first segment. And so we're going to be digging into all of that as the program continues. But for right now, if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nibs Stroop. He is a retired pastor from Oakhurst Presbyterian Church in Decatur, Georgia. But we're talking about his recent book co-authored with Catherine Meek's Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with the Reverend Nibs Stroop. He's the retired pastor of Oakhurst Presbyterian Church in Decatur, Georgia. He's a prolific author, both for magazines and printed books. But today we're talking about a book that he's co-authored with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. Well, we started to get into it a little bit before the break But I I just wanted to sort of get a background for our listeners of who Ida B. Wells was and kind of what her story was and how her story interfaces with the story of African-American progress, particularly in the early 20th century. All right, thanks. Yeah, Ida B. Wells is one of the most important people in American history, I think. Uh, That's why Catherine and I wrote a book about her and used her as a springboard to modern times. She was born in Marshall County, Mississippi, which is just south of Memphis in North Mississippi. She was born a slave in 1862, grew up in Reconstruction, and but never, in, and her parents were both slaves. They were owned by a guy in Holly Springs. Her dad was a skilled carpenter, and her mother was an educator. So she learned early on the internalized definition that she was a daughter of God, and she lived out of that all of her life. She had a really rich and powerful life. I'll, I'll just give some highlights, and we can go into more as, as needed. So her, her dad, at once uh, emancipation came and the Civil War ended, her dad and others uh, helped start Rust College in Holly Springs, which is still uh, in existence. It was Shaw University first, but changed to Rust. And Ida Wells was a student there as a high school student uh, at age 16 when both of her parents died of yellow fever in 1878. And she ended up raising or being in charge of raising her siblings. She was the oldest child. And she did that and did it well. Her first really encounter with the political system was in 1883 when she decided to not uh, get up from the car on the train. She had bought a first-class ticket, and up until that point, segregation had not been really enforced, but she was on a train uh, in the Memphis area uh, in her teaching job, and the conductor told her she would have to go back to a segregated car and get out of the ladies' car, and the segregated car was where everybody smoked, and if you wanted to smoke, you had to go there. So she refused to do it. 
So the conductor tried to get her up and throw her out, but she bit his hand, so she wasn't nonviolent. So he had to get some other guys, and they threw her off the train. But she sued uh, and won in, in, the, uh, in the first level of court in Memphis, but the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned it later on. But that uh, kind of galvanized her to become a witness for justice. Uh, and the next big event that did it was in 1892, she had discovered her calling, which was a journalist, and so she was writing for newspapers, black newspapers there. And one of her good friends, along with two other folk, were lynched in Memphis for the simple reason that they owned a grocery store in a black neighborhood, and across the street a white grocery store was their competitor, and they were taking business from that competitor. So they were lynched, and she did research and did a groundbreaking study of lynching, which indicated that the allegation that most lynchings in the South came because black men were raping white women were simply not true by the reports of the white newspapers. So that uh, really changed things, especially a lot of black folk had begun to kind of wonder, even Frederick Douglass had begun to kind of wonder whether there was something to that truth about black men, and she kind of exploded that. Uh, as a result, her offices in Memphis were blown up, and she was uh, exiled from the South for the next 30 years. And she worked in so many places. She helped found the NAACP. She took a couple of trips to Britain to raise money for anti-lynching. She wrote, did a lot of work on lynching. She did a lot of work on suffrage rights, women's rights. One of the reasons she was forgotten for a long time, I think, is that uh, she was just as strong a believer in rights for women as she was in uh, racial justice. So she would not let the black man or any man get away with a lot. So she was really a strong witness on that. She did a lot of stuff, just was in so many areas. She organized social clubs in Chicago when the great migrations of black folk leaving the South, the oppression of the South coming up to Chicago and other places. She organized social clubs for them to come and have a place to stay and find a job and learn skills about living in the city. So she she just did many, many things and, and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote about justice and especially anti-lynching stuff. Let's go back to a couple of those points. You mentioned that she was born in 1862. Slavery formally ended in 1865, and so she was born right at the tail end of slavery. And I think you talk about this in the book Passionate for Justice. You talk about a lot of people who are classified as white will tend to think, okay, slavery ended in 1865, and that ended the problem. Then the playing field was leveled, and everybody had an equal shot, and it's just a matter of your own merit and work from then on. But that was not the reality that Ida Wells grew up in was it? it? She grew up in a very different reality. And let's let's talk a little bit about what that reality of race relations was after the Civil War moving into the 20th century. Uh, yeah, she grew up for a few years, uh, maybe 10 years, uh, Reconstruction sort of held. It was always tenuous in the South. And most people, at least I hope, know a little bit of that history where uh, there were military district, districts in the South. But there was a lot of white violence as they sought to reestablish slavery. And finally, in 1877, in the compromise that elected Rutherford Hayes, the, the compromise was to pull the federal troops out of the South. Even before then, though, Grant and others had, had given up on trying to get white Southerners to act right. So it was, after the federal troops were pulled out, a uh, kind of reign of terrorism began, or just went in full steam. And the Supreme Court had several rulings where they kind of eviscerated, especially the 14th Amendment, and left it up to the states to enforce civil rights and even rule that 
white mobs could not be prosecuted by the federal government. They had to be prosecuted by the states, which they were never going to do. So, uh, and also the the white Democrats, uh, well, the white Southerners who were Democrats at that point, won back uh, legislative victories and began to solidify through violence and legislation to put uh, black folk back in what I would call neo-slavery status. I'm borrowing that term from Doug Blackman, who's book slavery for another by another name is really a foundational book in which he argues that slavery really didn't end and in the south until 1945 i would say 1965 when the voting rights act was passed so he documents and many others about the continuing oppression of people of color especially black folk in the south which is what she grew up with she experienced it often in the north not quite as overt but many lynchings in the north the biggest you know the most people will ever watch a lynching in the united states was in duluth minnesota where 10,000 folk watch folk but she grew up in uh, believing that she was a, a human being an equal person while this tidal wave of white supremacy and racism was reasserting itself still was really through her death and on up until the civil rights movement. Well, one of the things that I'm thinking of is in our first segment, we talked about in your first couple of years at Oakhurst Presbyterian Church, you had a phone call from uh, an elder in your church, an African-American woman, who confronted you and named the sort of latent racism that was going on in your interaction, and that allowed you to begin to move forward with that naming. I'm very aware of the fact that sort of the central vocation that Ida B. Wells had in her life, among the many things that she did, is that she was a person whose profession was naming truths. She was a journalist and she was a writer. And I'm just thinking about that parallel of powerful women of African-American descent who are able to name truths in our midst and to help to change our perception of things. And I'm, I'm wondering kind of what impact you see Ida Wells's practice of naming having on the early 20th century. Well, it was profound. Uh, she, uh, she, you're right, you're, you're, uh, it's a good uh, perception that she was a namer of truth, and she did that again and again. She worked hard to work with white women who were working for suffrage for women at that time before the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920. She had a lot of struggles with white women because they wanted to keep Southern white women who might support suffrage in their camp and were afraid if black women got in the leadership uh, or showed any leadership, they would uh, fall away. So, But Ida Wells would not yield to that. She, she strongly emphasized that had to bring, uh, they had to bring all women aboard. Of course, they did not. It took a long time. But she, she pushed hard for that. She pushed hard for the NAACP. She was really hurt by the directors of the NAACP because they didn't want a strong black woman like her on the board. She eventually got named back to the board. But she was a namer of truth. It was costly to her, but it's important for people like to have people like Ida Wells. She's kind of in the pantheon of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and Mary McLeod Bethune and folk like that, I think, and uh, who and Fannie Lou Hamer in more modern times who and Shirley Chisholm who have kind of named the truth, and that's important for us. I, I do want to add, I think, for white people, it's it's our responsibility to deal with this. It's great to have prophetic voices like Ida Wells and the woman who talked with me at Oakhurst, and we need to be listening to them, but it's uh, sometimes... Black folk feel like white folk are waiting on them to make us get right, but it's our responsibility to do it. But it's very powerful to have these women that name those kind of issues and name truth, as you so well said. 
Well, and you just used this this phrase, prophetic voice, and the subtitle of your book, Passionate for Justice, is Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. And so as we're coming to the end of this segment, I'd like to linger there for a little bit and just kind of ask, as you and Catherine Meeks are using this term prophet and prophetic voice, we use that pretty loosely in Christian circles. I'm wondering specifically what you mean by it and what you intend it to mean. Well, we mean by someone is who names the truth, as you indicated, who sees the truth and who names the truth, who may or may not be willing to pay the price for it. I don't know that any prophets, I guess I'm thinking of Jeremiah and his wrestling with God. I don't know that Jeremiah was willing to pay the price when he got into it, but he certainly took it on as he perceived his calling. So I think it's someone who perceives the truth and then names the truth and tries to get people to see what God is doing and intending in the world in which uh, we all are living, whatever age you're living. So the prophetic voices obviously can speak from the past, and we have prophets in the present, too. But I think people that perceive the truth, have that perceptual apparatus to perceive the truth and then name the truth and call individuals and the culture to try to live in that truth. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Reverend Nibs Stroop. He's a nationally recognized leader in multicultural and racial justice ministries. We're discussing a recent book that he co-authored with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're in conversation with the Reverend Nibs Stroop. He's a nationally recognized leader in multicultural and racial justice ministries, and he retired in 2017 as pastor of the Oakhurst Presbyterian Church in Decatur, Georgia. He's written a lot of magazine articles and a lot of books, and today we're discussing a recent book that he co-authored with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. So I'd like to take this segment and talk a little bit about the structure of your book, Passionate for Justice. If a person were to pick this book up, seeing the portrait of Ida B. Wells on the cover, they might think that they're picking up just a straight biography of Ida Wells, but that's not the case. Instead, certainly you engage with the biography and the life of Ida Wells and the impact that she had. But then the back half of the book really begins to imagine that legacy and use it as a jumping off point structurally to talk about very contemporary issues and the the continuing struggle for racial justice and even, dare we say, uh, the possibility of reparations and those kinds of questions. You engage with all of that on the back half of the book. And so I'd just like to ask, first of all, as you and Catherine Meeks were talking about the structure of this book, what was it that led you to use Ida B. Wells' as that kind of focal lens for these bigger questions. How did that conversation unfold? We talked about Ida Wells and both named our admiration for her. When I first engaged her in 1985, reading about her for this Black History series, preaching series, I was really astonished by her witness 
And I guess part of it is my arrogance as a white man. I was astonished that I had never heard of her. I've since learned that I, there's a lot of people I've never heard of that were powerful witnesses. But she really stood out because she had done so much for justice, especially racial justice and justice for women. And she was just not well known. I mean, I knew about Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and other black women like that, but I had never heard of her. So as the more I... Uh, studied about her and read about her, I was just astonished that she had been so forgotten in American history. Now, she's, she's been coming back in the last decade, for which we're grateful. And Catherine uh, also, I think, didn't she didn't know about Ida Wells growing up, but as an adult met her in, in readings and writings. And one of her students in one of her college classes that she taught here in Georgia said she reminded her of Ida Wells. So I think that kind of tipped her to think about what was that, what is it? And I think it was that uh, a namer of truth and someone who would seek the truth and name the truth. So we wanted to give a, a kind of brief biography. There are some good and longer biographies of Ida Wells, which we name in the book, uh, for kind of uh, deep details of her life. But we wanted to give uh, a synopsis of her life and kind of point her powerful prophetic witness towards our time, especially as race continues its power. Uh, we were writing, we began to talk about this really in, in early 2017, so we were writing right after the election of Donald Trump, and that kind of shocked to many people that uh, a white male who seemed not to have other qualifications to be president would be elected right after Barack Obama. So we were thinking about the continuing power of race and saw Ida Wells as a central witness on that. And we wanted to use her as a focus and then use her life and her witness reflecting in our own lives. So the, the last chapters are really our alternating writing on uh, Ida Wells' influence and her vision on her life. So Catherine writes both as a young black girl growing up in rural Arkansas. She and I grew up about 40 miles from one another. Of course, we didn't know one another. I grew up in segregated white stuff. So we were geographically close, but culturally worlds apart. So, But she understood that voice that told her she was not a little black girl as defined by white society, and Ida Wells helped once she met Ida Wells, helped her focus that. So she writes about that, and then she writes a fair amount about the intersection of feminism and womanist uh, theology and philosophy with race and racism. And then I write about my own journey, trying to be cap uh, freed from the captivity to race, and Ida Wells helped, uh, helpful uh, hints on that. And then there's a chapter is called Order Our Steps from the old gospel song, where I list seven steps for white people to consider as we engage our captivity to race. So I, I see our captivity to race, our being white folk, as similar to addiction. And there are many other models. I like addiction because I'm not sure we'll ever get over it, but we can acknowledge it and keep working on it and uh, find some liberation from it. So Ida Wells' voice is always in there. I don't know that she ever thought a guy like me could ever find much liberation from captivity to race or even gender, but she, her witness reminds me that it's possible to make some progress, so we use that throughout the book. Well, and there's a chapter towards the end of your book, Passionate for Justice, the chapter called Seeking the Beloved Community, and it's actually it's a conversation between you and Catherine Meeks, and one of the things that you say in that chapter, you specifically, Reverend Stroop, you say, I don't believe that Ida Wells could even imagine the idea of beloved community in the sense of white and black people sharing power equally in common life. So let's 
dig into that for a second. You, we're lifting up Ida Wells as a person with what Walter Brueggemann would call a prophetic imagination. She could name truth and she could see beyond the limitations of the world that was offered to her to a world that was more just and more hospitable. Nevertheless, you see limitations also on that prophetic vision. You see that she, and you just said it a moment ago, she would have difficulty imagining that you, as a white man reared in Arkansas in segregation, could work your way out of or recover from even a little bit the segregation and the segregated mindset that you grew up in. So let's let's talk both about the prophetic vision, but also the limitations that you see in that prophetic vision. Well, I think the limitations are that she uh, that uh, racism was so strong in the time that she lived. I think she and her main focus was justice for people of color, especially African Americans and for women. So I think. She was not engaged in her prophetic focus on trying to get white people to change. I don't know whether she thought white people would never change or that it wasn't worth the effort. And I think that's part of the issue in the beloved community. So it kind of, she's not Jesus, but it reminds me of the encounter that Jesus had uh, with the Syrophoenician woman where he doesn't want to listen to her because he's so tired out and she begs him and he says it's not worth throwing pearls to the dogs, and she says, you know, she corrects him and says, well, even the dogs are at the master's table. So that's to say, I don't think Jesus necessarily saw Gentiles as part of his ministry, but the the power of his prophetic vision just went on out and grabbed them. So I think that, for me, is Ida Wells' position. I think it's like the idea of equality in American history. I don't think the founders meant for women or people of color to be included in all men are created equal, but that that idea was so powerful that it just went beyond them. So I think Ida Wells didn't have a lot of hope for white folk, but I think her power and her witness made it possible for us to even think about building beloved community because she set the terms that if we're going to have beloved community, it will have to be with black folk as equals at the table, which even now most white folk white folk are not sure we want. So I think she was limited, but I think her vision also focused us to have that possibility that if we're going to have a beloved community, it's got to be with people as women and as people of color, especially African-Americans, as equals at the table with equal voice. What's fascinating to me in what you just said is if we think about the vision of the founders of this country, that vision we could describe as prophetic. They could imagine sort of a, a greater liberty than had existed in the world for most of human history. Nevertheless, that vision, prophetic though it was, was also limited. And it it took something like the crucible of the Civil War for people like Abraham Lincoln and, as you just said, Ida B. Wells, to then say the vision of the founders, they didn't even realize how powerful what they suggested was because it's not just freedom and liberty for property-owning white men, but it's freedom and liberty for those that were brought here in slavery. It's it's freedom and liberty for women. It's freedom and liberty for all those that come to the country. And it, it's fascinating to me, this dynamic of being able to see beyond the limitations of the time. And that's one of the things that I think your book, Passionate for Justice, does so well. It's an honest book that tries to look past your own limitations as a, as a white man raised in Arkansas and takes, takes the reader on a journey of recovery. And, and what I love also is Catherine Meeks's parallel journey of trying to find her own identity and affirm her own identity as an African-American woman in 21st century America. These are powerful stories that you're telling in this book. And I'm, I first of all just want to say thank you for that. But also, was it scary 
to put that down on the page and to talk about those places where you're still having to work very hard on these kinds of questions? Yes, it is scary. I mean, one of the scarier parts for me, and I guess I learned most of it at Oakhurst with the encounters that we were talking about earlier. I had many more encounters, and a lot of them are in the book, uh, with black people who were calling me out, I would say, and were saying not not to tell me I was bad, but to help educate me. So I think uh, that's one thing white folk, folk classified as white need to understand is that the the, the revelations are not saying we're bad folks. It's to say that we need to move from captivity to liberation. And I think your uh, emphasis on the idea of equality in American history is, is right there. I mean, the, the, the writers, that's, a, that's a still a revolutionary idea in, in the world history, the idea of equality. And the founders who wrote it uh, did not intend it for everybody, but it's such a power. Once it's loosed in the world, sort of like the gospel, once it's loosed in the world, it's hard to control because it, it has such profound connections with people. So, yes, Catherine and I had many conversations that were uncomfortable. We talked about a couple of them in that last chapter about our dialogue. But uh, the thing that impressed both of us is that we could have those conversations without feeling like we weren't listening to one another or we had to prove the other wrong. So I think that's a huge step uh, in that. And I think to do this work, you you are going, especially as a white person, uh, you are going to engage things that you hoped were not in yourself. I think a lot of people classified as white. Our goal is for others, especially people of color, not to know that we have some racism in us, but but they already know it. I think the the revelation comes not to them, but to us when we find it. Uh, I have to be honest and say that it's always there and always popping up, as I show in some of the stories in the book. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with the Reverend Nibs Stroop. He's a nationally recognized leader in multicultural and racial justice ministries. We're talking about a recent book that he co-wrote with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're talking with the Reverend Nibs Stroop. He's a nationally recognized leader in multicultural and racial justice ministries. We're talking about a recent book that he co-authored with Catherine Meeks called Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells as Prophet for Our Time. Well, at the very end of the book, Passionate for Justice, your co-author, Catherine Meeks, says something that I want to kind of lift up and dig into. She writes, Faithfulness does not require success. Though we all want to see our work bear fruit in some way, the fruit may not be equal to the effort that is exerted 
And it is critical to work hard to keep clarity about that fact. And I just want to think about that for a moment, because I think we all see these huge problems in the world. And I think that we read a book like, you know, the Bible, and we say, you know, God is the master of everything. And so if we just have the faith of a mustard seed, we'll move this mountain. And here's Catherine Meeks saying, no, you may, <laughs> you, you, it, may, it may take a minute for that effort to see fruition, and you might not see fruition in your lifetime. I just want to think a minute about that. Like, what, how, do we, how do we say to people who feel already very fearful of the risk involved in even naming their participation in this bondage of racism, how do we say to them, take courage, you need to get into this work, you need to do this, you need to name this, but you might not ever see progress or even positive results in your lifetime? How, how do we live in that tension? Well, I think the biblical story is is that, is how do you uh, proclaim this great news and it may not change the world. I, I think one thing to keep in mind for the gospel, and then I'll go back to Catherine, is that uh, Jesus was talking, he was an oppressed person. He, was, he, was a, he wasn't a citizen in the Roman Empire. He was a person who could be crushed and in the end was killed by the Roman Empire. So his his movement, his push was to was to people who were oppressed. So he was trying to help them find a way to live their lives with meaning and with clarity and with integrity, with God at the center and neighbor at the center. So I think whether he thought that uh, you know the God was coming back soon, that scholars debate that all the time. Uh, obviously, uh, we have the hindsight of two thousand years, which is not a lot in the universe time, but in human time it is. And Catherine's comments there came in the context of one of our disagreements um, was that I had written a couple of times in the book, and as we were going over the manuscript, that one of the things that impressed me about Ida Wells is that she didn't win many victories, but she was never defeated. And I thought that was such a great phrase. And so when I and Catherine read that, she said, well, she won many victories. You're just, you're just acting like a white man. She won many victories. How can you say she didn't win many victories? So I had to reconsider what I discerned as victory. So what I discern as victories is the uh, voting rights bill, 1965, uh, or the Supreme Court decision on who can love one another and be married, those kind of things, whereas uh, she saw them as kind of chiseling away at, at, at different structures of oppression. And it was a really a different point of view, which was very helpful to me. And I think in the American context, we're so triumphalist in our in our history. I think that we have a hard... Time and we're so young, really. In that, in one sense, we have a hard time understanding the necessity of kind of steady work. So Ida Wells preceded Rosa Parks by seventy something years. Frederick Douglass had refused to get off of, into a segregated car in the eighteen forties. So those little steps were made. That doesn't mean there'll always be progress, but it means there's got to be people who are either building something or chiseling away something, depending on the metaphor that you want to have. But for me, the gospel is about individuals finding our real definition as a child of God and then beginning to see that other people are children of God and living that out. Now, what will catch fire, that's really God's grace and God's spirit. I mean, no one—people have been doing stuff in the United States in the 20th century for racial justice and women, justice for women, for decades before a stuff caught fire in the 1960s, uh, and we're still having to fight for it now. So I think— 
the idea, the progressive idea of history is not true, but the idea that we can be witnesses and find our place is true. And I think that's one of the things that I most admire about Ida Wells. She was in a tidal wave of racism, but she found her place and pro- professed her truth. And some of it came true much after years after she died, but she helped build the foundation for it. Well, and you alluded to this a little bit, but I'd like to dig in. How has engaging in these conversations with Catherine Meeks and how has this deep engagement with the life and the prophetic voice of Ida B. Wells affected your own walk of faith? Well, it has helped me to see, I guess the negative part has helped me to see my deep captivity to the powers. And so I've, I've, uh, my time at Oakhurst helped me to really deepen uh, my understanding of the biblical view of sin, I guess, the negative view. I mean, I grew up with sin as kind of individualistic stuff, no drinking, no fornicating, uh, all that kind of stuff, and which is, you know, there's, there's certainly part of that. Uh, there's something good in part of that. But the encounter with Ida Wells and Catherine and other folk on the issue of race and the encounter with my spouse on the issue of gender and other women has helped me to see that really the Bible is talking about something much deeper, and that is there is a systematic, uh, what I call demonic power. People call it the devil, whatever you want to call it. There is a demonic power that diminishes the humanity of everybody, and it's done in our in our time by race and gender and many other powers, materialism, and that that's really what the Bible's talking about, that it's really talking about our captivity to those fundamental powers, and that's why the images like Paul uses, or whoever wrote Ephesians uses, of having to dress like a Roman soldier in Ephesians 6 to kind of engage these powers. So that's the negative part, just that perception that that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about just kind of a person living on the surface of life, but going deep into our lives to our captivity. The positive part is that Jesus is coming for us, so there is liberation there. Ida Wells proclaims liberation. You don't have to be captured to race if you're a person that's a black person or a white person or whatever your category. There's another definition out there, and so that's the positive part, that liberation maybe not full liberation, but some liberation is possible that we are asked to begin to engage in. So for me, uh, I, uh, I gave up on the faith when I was a young adult because I'd been, I discovered I had been taught really wonderful things by really wonderful people and then really terrible things by those same wonderful people in the church. And so once I began to recover this sense of what the faith is about, then it really makes sense, and the church even makes sense, that the church ought to be a place where people come together and begin to experience beloved community and find what the true meaning of their life is, that they're children of God, not children of all this other stuff. So great possibilities in this, which I would have never imagined. Well, Reverend Nib Stroop, I really learned a lot from this book, Passionate for Justice. I'm so thankful that you and Catherine Meeks took the time to write about the life of Ida B. Wells and to use her life as a lens to see how we can be prophetic in our own time. And I also want to thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to me and my listeners about the work that you and Catherine Meeks did. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate your interview. Great time. Thank you. We've been speaking today with the Reverend Nib Stroop. He's a nationally recognized leader in multicultural and racial justice ministries. He's the author of several books, and today we've been discussing Passionate for Justice, Ida B. Wells' Prophet for Our Time, which he co-wrote with Catherine Meeks. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. 
Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.